Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Welcome to our special guest episode today with Sasha Long. She is the founder and president of Autism Helper, uh, an organization dedicated to empowering those who support individuals with autism by providing resources, tools, and methods to measure success. I'm very excited to have you here. Please do check out her website, theautismhelper.com, for blogs, podcasts, training videos, etc., to help professionals like you and I, ABAs and OTs alike, um, you know, serve our clientele better. Sasha, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So I just told everyone a little snippet. Is there anything you wanted to add? No, I think, you know, that covers it. Just, you know, I try to find all the ways to share information. So we have a blog, a podcast, YouTube, social media. So any way you want to consume content, we're ready. (laughs) So before I go anywhere, I just wanted to ask really quickly, how did you move from student teacher or special ed teacher, sorry, to ABA? That's a great question. So I became a special ed teacher. I got my first job, you know, I was 22 years old not ready for anything. I tell this story all the time on social media or my podcast. I walked into my first classroom with two little bags with like two rolls of paper towel and a roll of Clorox wipes. Like, I don't know what I thought I was going to do with those two rolls (laughs) of paper towel. But, you know, I, I had a class of 10 kids with autism and I was just wildly unprepared, really. And the special ed degree is just so broad. You can teach junior high self-contained autism, or you can teach a high school resource room and work on pre-calculus, or you could teach preschool. So you're prepared for a little bit of everything, but you're not, your knowledge isn't just that deep. So I was lucky to be in a school where the principal really supported me and he knew that he didn't know, which is I think a great administrator to know that like, this isn't my area of expertise. So he gave me a lot of leeway to figure things out on my own. And, you know, I was able to get some outside training and help. And the more I looked for more resources to help me work with my students better and mostly, you know, really looking at challenging behavior, I felt like I couldn't get to the academics I wanted to get to because I didn't know the best ways to address challenging behavior. I came across ABA and there was a program that was not far from my school at the Chicago school and a coworker and I actually went together and we went to school at night and I did my supervision hours in my classroom, which was amazing. So I could learn about strategies in the evening and come back and be like, ooh, let's try a DRO today. So that was hard, but great to kind of get that experience right away and see how these strategies can work in an overcrowded, understaffed classroom and not necessarily learn how these strategies work in a one-on-one or clinic-based setting where you have maybe a lot more resources that, hey, this really works anywhere. So yeah, that's how I kind of fell into ABA. Wow, brilliant. Um, Well, before we delve into some specific questions for you, I just wanted to give a shout out to Jonathan Amy, who's also a special ed teacher. So a nice flow over there. Do you know Jonathan at all? I don't. Um, I don't. Yeah, he is brilliant. He's very good at precision teaching and has implemented it into 
his work um, at the school. And he teaches teachers, educators, uh, aides, and myself on how to use precision teaching in um, school setting in various settings. And we're actually going to have him on our show later on. But I just thought I'd give him a shout out because he's brilliant. He's very helpful and very kind. So Mandy, uh, do you want to ask her our first question? Yeah, I do. I guess the goal, Sasha, of our uh, podcast here, a kind of a unique goal of bringing together the two fields of ABA and OT, a lofty goal. And I'd be really interested to hear, you know, how your collaboration has gone with OTs. Presumably you come across them uh, consulting in the classroom, etc. Yeah, you know, I, I love this goal because I feel this like I that's that's my goal for our field you know as I can't speak obviously I'm not an OT as an OT but as a behavior analyst one big struggle that I have with our field is that I don't think we play well with others and that's a a generalization there's you know there's thousands of collaborative BCBAs so I'm not trying to like give us a bad name but let's generalize for a minute I don't think we play well with others and that's such a huge disservice because we are always on a team like this is a human service industry we are always going to work with other providers with parents and we have to like first and foremost be good collaborators and I just see it time and time again that we're not and it's it's disheartening when I walk into a room and introduce myself as a BCBA and I get like an eye roll from an adult and I'm like I can see you Karen simmer down <laughs> you know and it's like and I but you know that that eye roll comes from their history to think about it behavior analytically that comes from their history of learning that they've had an aversive yeah. interaction with a BCBA in, a, in the past and I hate that for our field because I don't ever want any clinician, but especially a young clinician to to experience that because as a human, our response is to get defensive. Then we're like, no, we're the only right one on this team. So you roll your eyes at me, let me shut down all of your ideas. So, you know, it kind of becomes this vicious cycle. Why do you think it is that we, and I wanna, I wanna say we, because I have had the same experience uh, with behavioralists, you know, having that same kind of arrogance, I guess, because we're so proud of our field. But what's your theory on why we sometimes come across as arrogant or um, all-knowing? You know, I think it's because on an IEP team and like from a school perspective, everyone has their lane. You know, SLPs, we're going to work on communication. OT, we're, we're building up the fine motor skills. PTs doing this. Teachers doing this. Social workers doing this. But like as if you're a behavior analyst on the team, you're in all the lanes, Um, So we kind of we're involved in communication, we're involved in motor skills, we're involved in academic instruction. So if we're looking even purely at like a a negative behavior reduction standpoint, negative behavior is going to happen in in every setting and in every scenario. So we need everyone to be on board with our behavior plans. So I think that that's one reason is that we're we've got a hand in, in everything, but also from the perspective of of a teacher or a parent, if negative behavior, and especially if it's something, you know, dangerous, if we're talking aggression, self-injury, you know, extreme property destruction, that is first and foremost, the most important thing on everyone's mind. You know, at the end of the day, whatever type of educator you are, your job is to keep that child safe. So if behaviors are interfering with that goal, 
we do kind of seem to rise to the most important person then of that team unintentionally or intentionally that, hey, we've got we've got the secret sauce on how to help decrease these behaviors. And it's sometimes true, but that doesn't mean that we're the most important person on the team. Just because we can help with this problem right now doesn't mean that there are other problems that we can't handle or that other people are going to have a better opinion on. Yeah. And well, you I think, think you hit the nail on the head because you infiltrate across all other disciplines, you know, right? Behavior infiltrates everything. More the reason that you have to be collaborative. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because I can work separate from a speech therapist. I'm better if I work alongside with her and collaborate. But for you, since you're impacting everybody, and also there's got to be something with the universality of making sure everyone's doing the same behavior plan, right? So yeah. you really do need to collaborate. And I, I agree with you. I think that was a really good way of putting it. When you mentioned that all these aversive responses, that's how they've gotten to the point where they're like, I don't want to work with a BCBA, for example. Mm-hmm. And I try to talk to OTs about that. And it's really interesting that, you know, the information I get from OTs, um, most of them. So OTs are like the middle child, right? We <laughs> don't like conflict. We, when we don't like to put ourselves out there like the eldest child, but we're always trying to mediate. And in that process, we tend to sit back and watch. Um, and then in private, we might... <laughs> Um, engage in conversations. And that's what's happened with me when I first started working with the BCBA. You know, we were at opposite ends of the spectrum. And actually, the director where I work, she said to me, she said, I don't want you interfering with uh, the ABA's treatment plan because it's a different set of rules and principles. Instead of saying, I want you to talk to her and figure out how you can work together, mm. she actually encouraged us to be separate. Yeah. It's so diminishing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that divide really, that's where it started. But instead of doing that, I decided I was going to learn more. And I just asked her to go to coffee. And yeah, then Bob's your uncle. We were fine after that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So lots of little experiences like that. So thank you for framing it the way you did. I think that was really helpful. So, Sasha, what are some things that have worked for you in terms of collaborating, I guess, in particular with ITs, but with, you know, with other professionals on a team? Yeah, that's a great question. I I could, like, talk about that for days. You know, I think that's something at least that was missing from my undergrad program, but I, I feel like is missing from other undergrad programs for becoming a behavior analyst is is the skill of collaborating and and being you know warm fuzzy like i don't think we're like a warm fuzzy field and we need to be like our a lot of our field is built on working with kids with disabilities like we can be warmer we could be fuzzier like PBIS, Positive Behavior Intervention Support, is like, if you look at their website, it is so warm and fuzzy. Like the words they use are beautiful and it's this, you know, collaborative approach for, that's dynamic. And like, we don't, we don't use language like that. We're like, no, we do extinction. We do discrete trial. We do this. And first, so we're just coming off maybe not in the greatest way to start off. What I always tell, you know, when I've taught grad school, I I used to teach um, practicum class, which I loved teaching. Because I love hearing about other settings and what they're doing there and and kind of being able to talk about this with professionals that are about to become behavior analysts. That what do you do when you walk into 
a new school for a consult, when you walk into a parent's home for the first time to meet a new client, when you walk into an IEP meeting, there are so many important first steps that I think I've seen people miss that make such an impact. You know, things like, you know, when you're the new person, you're listening. You're not jumping in with your ideas right away. You're the listener. You're taking things in and then kind of embracing being warmer and being fuzzier, you know, like not jumping in with, well, you know, right off the bat, right away, like, let's look at data and let's do this. And I know the right answer. So I think there's some, you know, simple steps to be taken, even in those first interactions of collaboration that can kind of shift the way the relationship goes. You know, Aditi, like kind of like you said, like, let's go to coffee and talk about it versus, you know, let me let me come in and tell you why what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, and I think Sasha, you know, it's from a behavioral analyst point of view, we are experts in shaping and reinforcing behavior with the students that we work with, but we're not always good at doing that with adults or, you know, co-workers or then with other fields as well. So when is a time when you've seen a behavior analyst really use the tools and the, the science that we have to foster, you know, relationships outside of our field? Have you seen people do that well? Yeah, is- definitely. And I think, you yeah. know, when when behavior analysts approach a professional relationship with, like you said, those same ideas that we do with our client, like let's start off by pairing. That's it. Yeah. Like my goal for this first, you know, meeting or if I'm meeting a new clinician is not to sell them on my ideas because my goal meeting a client for the first time is not teaching a new skill. My goal meeting a client the first time is to pair and to make, establish myself as a reinforcer, establish our session as a reinforcing awesome place to be. So that should be your goal when you're meeting a clinician and a new coworker, a new parent is to just pair at that point. And there are definitely behavior analysts that are so, so great at that. And it comes so naturally too. When has collaboration, when have you really tried hard and it, and it didn't work? The teams that I've been a part of the most are teams that I was a part of as a, as a special ed teacher. It's hard in a school setting on collaboration because of the time component. You know, there's just so little common planning time given to teachers where they can sit down with the OT, they can sit down with the SLP or, you know, the school psych. And those minutes of that, you know, you're getting with your kids are kind of so precious. Oh, my kid gets 30 minutes a week of speech. You can't really waste 10 of them talking to the teacher and the caseloads school-based clinicians get are just wild. So, you know, it, it really is, I, I don't always think that lack of collaboration, you know, comes from people not wanting to collaborate. It's those barriers sometimes about like time and and minutes and things like that. And I don't know if I'll always as a teacher, I did the best job of being creative on how to solve that, whether that's like, let me come in early, let me come after in the afternoon, let's collaborate via email, You know, there's just so many things on a teacher's plate, but like adding that in, in a really meaningful way will make everything better. I guess the challenge that our science has is, you know, it's complicated, right? (laughs) What we do takes, not that I'm saying other fields don't bring a lot of skill sets to what they do, but taking data, understanding behavior, measuring it, you know, uh, analyzing it. They're not things that you can give people tools to do in a, you know, in a 10 minute meeting. So What are some tools you do use to sort of um, foster relationships to assist you in data collection? 
you know, my like mantra with data collection is if it's not easy, you're not going to use it. And I've seen teachers and I'm guilty of this too, you know, making the most beautiful data binder, like it's tabbed and it's, it's color coded. And, and if you were to take that data, man, it would be the most thorough data that anyone's ever seen. And it collects dust and it's, you take data two days and then you're like, screw that. Like, I don't have time for that. So what I always teach, you know, teachers and paraprofessionals or any other clinicians that I'm working with, if I'm asking them to collect data as well, it's like ease, like what is going to be the most easy thing? You know, I love a click counter, you know, three bucks on Amazon. Hey, every time he does this, click, click this counter. That's it. Um, yeah. Taking tallies on a post-it note, like, and and I think really asking people like, hey, you know, SLP that you're taking my kid for 30 minutes and I'd love to know if, you know, self-injury is happening during your session. Can you, what would be the easiest way for you to track this? Would it just be easy for you to add a column to your data sheet? Would it be easy for you to put a piece of masking tape on your leg and just not, you know, draw a notch each time? Would a click counter be good? Some people love the click counter. Some people are like, get that thing away from me. So I think asking people's opinion is always really helpful and just really keeping it super simple. Like, what do I need to know? Not what do, what would I like to know? You got to go like need to know. Yeah. So Sasha, I have a question. Um, You know, obviously we have very different philosophies when it comes to the big S word, you know, sensory. And I'm sure having worked in the school setting and special ed teacher, you've encountered it. How, from a BCBA lens, do you manage that? Because that's one of the biggest criticisms in the OT world is, oh, ABAs are not considerate of sensory sensitivities. I'm not talking about interventions, yeah. just, you know, the sensory aspect. And when you're talking about all that touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy, yeah. OTs, that's who we are. Yeah. <laughs> like that is, <laughs> we are the fuzzy bunny that right there, because everything we do, it's, it's very holistic. We look at the big picture and um, it doesn't speak to us if there isn't that fussy, fuzzy sort of component. Yeah. I think sometimes behavior analysts don't consider sensory needs. So I think sometimes there's a valid point made that, you know, we get so hyper-focused on one thing that we aren't seeing the whole picture. And I used to tell this, like, almost every class I taught when I when I taught practicum or ethics that OTs, SLPs, they went to just as much grad school as you did. They have just as many student loans. And th- we cannot mm-hmm. discount that field by being like, we know more. Like, they are professional too. They have their master's degree in something different. So we have to always you know, validate and want to hear out other ideas. That might not be what we're writing in our behavior plan because we're going to follow our ethical codes in utilizing evidence-based practices, but we're, we're not going to say that someone else can't use that. And we can, I think there's a lot of, you know, value we can bring to interventions other people are trying. Like my approach was always like, Okay, you, you want to try a weighted vest? Cool, let's try it. We'll continue to take data as we're, you know, we are in the class on on these behaviors. And we're we're gonna share data with you on if the weighted vest, you know, has an impact and see if that does. So I think we can really, you know, pull our data in and let the data be the one to make the decision and it not be a personal situation. You know, I think that is so much more powerful than being like, nope. 
weighted vests don't do anything. Nope, done. There's no evidence to support that. Let's move on. Instead, let's be like, hey, let's let's take some data on the weighted vest and then come back to the table in X amount of time and look at the data because you know, when, and I've been in this scenario so many times where maybe there isn't an impact and it's the OT or the other clinician that's looking at the data and being like, oh, this didn't make any difference. So let's try something else. And you're like, oh, great idea. (laughs) What a good idea. Let's, yeah, let's do that. You're right. So it's really, you know, their idea then on moving forward with a new intervention or a new strategy. So I think we can really, because we're in all the lanes and we're kind of infiltrating everything, that we can utilize our data to be kind of that bridge on how everyone works together. So, you know, I wanted to just share a little story that um, somebody reached out to me to tell me. So this is a BCB, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher her name, um, Shafkot, S-H-A-F-Q-A-T. Anyway, she is a BCBA, and she posted this story, which sounds, it was just like the ultimate collaborative story. She was talking about a student who does not like to be in the sensory swing. But for the OT, that was an integral part of intervention because she was working on vestibular sense and building safety awareness for body um, security, et cetera, et cetera. And so the student is being put into the swing by the OT and screaming and crying and shouting and just losing her blob, basically. And then the OT or the BCBA suggested, you know what, why don't you pair her favorite activity, which is finger painting, with the non-preferred activity of swinging the pot. And the BCBA just came in and gave her that little tip and that changed the entire session. And then the OT went and, you know, reinforced the BCBA for doing that. I love that. It just made me so happy. And I asked her, I said, do you mind if I share this on the podcast? And she's like, no, of course. So like there's little tips that you guys have as ABA therapists. They're so profound and they're so easy to implement that if an OT is willing to listen, I think it can make such a huge difference. Yeah. And what you basically said, Sasha, is you were essentially saying you don't want to make anyone wrong. Yeah. It's not about that. It's just about, okay, well, let's see if it works. And if we think about like history of learning from the relationship of that OT and that BCBA, that now that OT's history of learning is like, oh, wow, this, the BCBA's advice helps me be more Mm -hmm. successful with my goals. Next time I have a problem, I might go to them. Or when they give me a suggestion, I might think it's a good idea now because in the past, it's been something that's been helpful versus, mm-hmm. oh, last time I suggested something, they shut me down. So, you know, I already have this like aversive connection with them. Yeah, I, I think that's very valid I, because I know myself when I talk to a BCBA or any other professional and they give me that sort of cold response, I'm like, okay, mental no, I won't be asking her that yeah, question again. Of course. But I did want to ask you about, since you work with so many professionals and parents Uh, families with autism, you know, students with autism, do you encounter a different perspective in that do they see OT as very different than ABA and do they, have they learned to prefer one over the other? Within the school system, for kids with autism, it's almost assumed that OT services are going to be provided. I mean, there's typically some type of identified need if a child is 
definitely in a self-contained room or, you know, has that diagnosis, there's typically some impact on like school-based skills and the schools, you know, like as you know, OTs are going to work on school-based skills. So I see that like, okay, you know, there's very commonly OT services given. There's very, you know, almost always SLP services given, sometimes social work. Within the schools, you know, ABA services are pretty pretty few and far between, you know, provided, especially in public schools. In a therapeutic school, there's going to be, you know, likely a BCBA on staff, hopefully multiple. But in public schools, it's still new. You know, it's still not something very common. And then in the reverse, in the home setting, you know, we're seeing a lot of, of parents going, you know, for early intervention and getting, you know, maybe having their, their child get some services at a clinic at a regular basis for ABA services. So, you know, hopefully as, as those kids get older and start to move into school-based settings, wanting to bring those services with them. But I do mm-hmm. think that parents really, you know, are seeing kind of the need for both. And hopefully teachers are too, that they serve different purposes, but can, can still work together. Yeah, I hope so. Because I think that's one of the contentious issues in OT is that In OT's mind, ABA is getting a lot more referrals. They get a lot more hours. So that's sort of the economic built-in discontent, Mm -hmm. at least in the United States. I'm not sure how it is in Australia, Mandy, but that's sort of a built-in issue. You know, so OTs get very defensive about it. And I just tell them, I'm like, look, yeah, you don't have as many hours as an ABA therapist, but you have access to caregivers and our scope of practice includes home programs. Use that, mm-hmm. create a home program so the caregiver or, you know, can implement your strategies, which can be just as effective if you're good at you know, implementing it, but we don't use them. Home programs have gone out the window. Nobody's really using them unless it's for, you know, FISDAS, which is if you've broken an arm or something more rehab. So I think that's where I was coming from, that a lot of OTs get upset about the hours, but I'm like, you can really ameliorate that. And I I just wondered if parents see that too. They're like, well, I'm just going to do ABA because I need 20 hours. There probably are parents and that maybe from a logistics standpoint too, it's like, I only have the brain power to like work with one clinician because I've just got so much going on. I could totally see that. And, oh, they recommended 20 hours a week of ABA. God, I can't even imagine adding more to my child's plate. But I think that's the role then of the behavior analyst to look at the whole child and say, hey, like, let's pull in an OT. Let's pull in an SLP. What else can we do to give the most support to this child? And that might not be something that always comes naturally to a BCBA to want to, you know, pull other people in. But that's how we're going to get the best results for our clients. So do you see any different with um, collaborating with SLPs? No, I think SLPs don't like us either. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think, you know, I think in general, again, these are broad overgeneralizations. I like hate to even say that, but there, there are obviously so many amazing BCBAs who do such a great job. But my history of learning too, because those, you know, the bad apples stick out in there. I've seen BCBAs rub, rub SLPs the wrong way too. You know, I have amazing, you know, great friends that are SLPs who I've worked with for a long time. And I I still think they like tell me that like, oh, yeah, I I get ABA. I understand it like to my face. But like deep down, they're like, meh, someone sold me wrong on it. And it's hard to 
someone that has, you know, had an aversive situation with a behavior analyst, it's hard to come back from it. An example I always give when I talk to clinics or when I talk to big groups of BCBAs is it's easy for people to write off ABA and behavior analysts based on one bad experience. You know, if you have one bad experience with a doctor, you're not going to write off the field of medicine because of that one bad doctor. But you also meet a lot of doctors in your life. You don't meet a lot of behavior analysts. So if you have one or two experiences with a behavior analyst and one or two of those experiences aren't great, it's real easy to be like, meh, that's not for me. ABA doesn't work for me. I don't like that. So each experience that we have with people outside of our field can have such an impact and then such a future impact on their other clients and students and other clinicians that they're going to be working with. Yeah, I'm always curious to see how ABA is perceived around the world. Yeah. Um, our problem in OT, we're rubbish at marketing. We're still, <laughs> hundred years later, people still don't know what we do. Um, but in England, like I have a BCBA friend in England and she will tell me, yeah, they, you know, they don't really like ABA here. And I'm like, but why, how, how does this even start? Yeah. It's quite interesting. How is it in Australia, Mandy, the climate well, of ABA? Yeah, not great. Because there isn't a lot of ABA taught here. There is a huge misunderstanding, not just here, I've lived in America as well, that ABA is a science in itself. It's not a therapy. And so people say, oh, I'm doing ABA with my child or, you know, that child is doing ABA as opposed to, you know, accessing um, services, applying, you know, science. Um, So when they see really I know I use the C word then, really bad, <laughs> discrete trial instruction where kids, you know, are on very thin schedules of reinforcement, that's repeated goals. You know, it's really rote instruction without any data to support generalization of these skills. You know, I think they have every right to say that isn't very good intervention and these kids are not maintaining skills over time. But that is not ABA. Unfortunately, what was really amazing this week is that on LinkedIn, a senator, so a really senior politician in our um, country, came out and said exactly that, and I was so impressed. Um, I, I, I posted back to her and said, it's the first time I've ever heard a politician say that, you know, what you're talking about there is not ABA itself, it's the delivery of the service, and that was probably poor. But that, that doesn't, you know, change that this is a science that's been around for 100 years. And, you know, it's like saying that physics doesn't work, saying that ABA doesn't work. But in general, if you talk to people outside of, you know, behavior analysis, it has a pretty poor reputation here. And then, you know, there's a, a little bit of understanding of what ABA is, but there's even less of an understanding of what precision teaching is or what the standard acceleration chart is. So, so yeah, and in general, my, you know, my um, experience with OTs and, and SLPs, as you call them, is not very good in, in general. And so, I try and seek out um, speech therapists that are, you know, BCBAs as well, and there are some good ones here in this country that have sort of had that training as well. I don't know of any OTs in Australia that are BCBAs, and if there are, I would love to hear from them. And so, you know, I've I've gone about the path of employing um, OTs and training them in behaviour analysis so that, you know, we get both of these disciplines, awesome disciplines combined, but also with the ability to, to take and analyse data and, exactly what Sasha said, you know, assess the effectiveness of some of these interventions, because that's my real area of passion. And, um, you know, there is a lot more funding for OT in our country than there is for ABA. 
It's um, a much better understood science in Australia than behaviour analysis is. In particular, we have a funding source here in this country called the NDIS or the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which is the first time we've sort of had insurance available for disabilities in our country. Before that, we had basically no funding and it's really weighted towards speech and OT except for early intervention. So yeah, I think there's a long way of saying that, you know, our collaboration in this country is not great and why I signed up for this um, podcast because there are some really good goals from OT. But on the other side of things, I'm passionate about measuring the effectiveness of that because of the time and money restraints that are put on parents when it comes to, you know, getting effective service. And there's just no time to waste. And so if what you're doing isn't working, you need to change something fast. And, um, you know, one of the things about OT is if it's weekly delivery of service and they're not taking any data, you know, weeks and months can go past before any changes are made. So that's a long way of saying, Aditi, answering your question of saying, you know, there is a real misunderstanding of ABA here and not great collaboration between, at least in my experience, between the fields. And there's lots of work to be done. Yeah. Well, do you both think that data collection can really solve a lot of that contention between all our fields? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, as I said, it's it's objective. It's not a personal Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a personal, uh, you know, attack. And that's how sometimes people can take it when you don't like their idea. If someone were to come to me and say, we should use a sensory diet and use this. And I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't think so. Cause I don't know, you know, if that's going to work. It now feels like this, oh, they don't, they don't think my idea is good. And that can spiral real quickly to, they don't think I'm a good clinician. They don't value my field, blah, blah, blah. Versus mm-hmm. let's have the data give us the answer. It's no longer personal. It's objective. So what I'm hearing you say, so you first you said pair yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So could you explain that for OTs? What does that actually mean? You know, I think it means the same really for anyone, whether it's um, an OT or a speech pathologist or a parent or a teacher. When a behavior analyst comes into that first meeting, you want to establish yourself as a reinforcer and that you are mm-hmm. on their team because so often the kind of connotation or the context of this first relationship is like combative even before it starts like someone else is being brought in to help me like I see this from a teacher perspective a lot like oh that's the in-home behavior analyst or the administration hired a, a BCBA to help me and it's it's all of a sudden very like from the teacher like whoa 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 you're coming into my home because like the classroom is the teacher's home and you're going to tell me what to do in my home? Like, no, thank you. And that can be the same way with an OT. Like, I, I hey, I've been working with this client for two years. You're not going to show up and tell me what I'm doing wrong or what I should be doing differently. So I think you can pair right away by just <laughs> some of the things are so ridiculously simple that like I feel silly mentioning some of them, but they're so huge and I see people make major missteps on this. But Mm -hmm. such common like courtesies as like if you're going to do an observation, explaining what you're going to do in an observation, like, hey, can I observe your OT session? I might be taking notes because I want to learn about the client. So if you see me writing things down, it's because, you know, I want to remember what you're working on. You know, when you're doing an observation in a classroom that you truly just observe, you don't talk, you sit, 
you find connections. Like I, I tell behavior analysts this a lot. Like we're data people. When you go into a new meeting with a new parent, with an OT, with an IEP team, you should be able to in that session find three connections with someone. And it can be silly. Like, oh my God, you got your coffee? <laughs> I got my coffee too. We're both coffee drinkers. Look at that. We're, we're already the same. Like, so just things where you can find common ground and literally saying like, we are a team. We both want the best for this child. Like, let's work together. And actually saying those things, not just assuming that they think that and they know that, but saying like, hey, like, OT Sarah, like, you've done a great job here. Like, I can't wait to work with you. I can't wait to learn from you. I can't wait to contribute to this team in a positive way. And we so often aren't verbalizing that. No, not only is it not being verbalized, but there's a lot of body language, yeah. unfortunately, that muddies the water. Yeah, that might say the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though you might be well-meaning, you know, like sometimes I think it's hard to admit it to, admit that you're wrong. Yes. Um. So, so that's what I always tell, you know, OTs to come to me and I'm like, you know, I, I want to learn about ABA, but I'm just afraid that they're going to chastise me for using sensory procedures or interventions and I just tell them I'm like say you know what just be authentic and say look I could be wrong but this is what I think Mm -hmm. and can you help me figure out a way to take data that's the biggest thing if you can solve an OT's data problem I think you've made a best friend right there because that's (laughs) the big problem right yeah um, I've done that many times in the in the past before I knew anything about precision teaching. When there was a, a BCB on board on my staff, I'd be like, can, can you just help me figure out how would I take data on this? And it was very rudimentary. Like she would just tell me what to do and I would just, you know, tally it. But that was a huge step because yeah. then I could tell her, hey, this is what I took. What would you say of this data? So the biggest thing, the biggest, biggest, biggest thing I think we can learn as OTs from ABA is learn how to take data because that's going to change the trajectory of our conversations. As an OT saying that to a BCBA, I mean, you're you're like un- unknowingly doing some pairing there too because BCBAs love talking about data. So like <laughs> immediately they're like, ooh, I like this person. They're going to let me talk about data. Cool. Like this is great. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's the key and that's what our push is too. And that's one of the reasons precision teaching is so valuable to both Mandy and I, because it provides a mutual medium. Just like Mandy was saying that, you know, with precision teaching, it's standardized. Like it's the same for everybody and anyone can look at it, not know anything and know whether it's working or not. I don't know, Mandy, you probably explain it better than I do as far as precision teaching really bridging the gap for us. Well, I've yet, other than your daddy, um, had the opportunity to work with either an SLP or an OT that uses data, but I'm getting closer. I always had the view when other people contributed ideas that, you know, I attempt to take my own data to see if it was working or not. But I really yet to work with anyone in this country um, where we have taken data, although I am very excited that I have recently hooked up with a speech pathologist in Queensland and um, she listened to one of our podcasts and I'm now collaborating with her and so I am going to teach her to chart and I have yeah I've definitely taught psychologists to chart Um, so I'm working with someone again in Queensland at the moment teaching her to chart and so 
that's one of my goals is, you know, in my lifetime to help people determine the effectiveness of the interventions they're using and to help them make decisions based on data, not on gut feel. Both my passion as a parent who has a child with autism and then my work in this field is to, you know, ensure that that precious time that goes by when kids are so young is not wasted on interventions that have no long-term impact on the child. You know, it doesn't matter where those interventions come from. So, you know, you, you can't improve what you can't measure is what I say. So, yeah, I'm very passionate about teaching people outside of our field this awesome science that we have, not in a judgmental way, because when you do open it up to them, they don't understand that, that, that oh, that's what ABA is. Um, you know, particularly parents, like a lot of parents do ABA, but are never given any data or any explanation as to why things are working or not working. And that's, you know, totally contrary to our science and that we share and, and show, you know, what we're doing. But um, so even with our own field, we're challenged with that, let alone outside of our field. So yeah, I think, I think that's a collaboration for me is giving people these tools that our science brings that can really add value to what you do on a day-to-day basis with your clients. I just wanted to ask you, if you think of OT, Sasha, tell me three adjectives that you think of. I would think creative, helpful, okay, and I would say fun. Okay. Yeah. Love it. I love how positive you are. And that's actually one of the strategies I use with a lot of ABAs and OTs is I'll just say, okay, just tell me what comes to your mind when you think of OT, because it really tells me what they know about us. Mm -hmm. And it also changes the frame of being more positive, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because OTs just think of ABA as as data and cold. Yeah, Those are the two words, Yeah, unfortunately. I think data is brilliant, but I don't think they realize that ABAs can be fun. I know we're not because we're not we're not always very fun, and we can be. But but you can be. Yeah, yeah we can Actually, be. Enforcement. I've seen it. Yeah, you know, and um, I think and- I think there is a huge push in our field recently, which I really love on on kind of the, you know you know Dr. Megan Miller talks a lot about this this do better movement, or and and Dr. Hanley talking about you know everything being that we do being televisable and. And this new ABA. And because we don't, I mean, this is going off a little bit on a tangent, but I think this is where people's opinions are forming from is we don't have a very pretty history, like the field of ABA. Like our history is not so pretty. And and I think that as a field, we do need to take accountability and ownership from that. And, you know, Mandy, as you had said, it's not the field of ABA, but it's the delivery of ABA that's been done, not only poorly, but sometimes in a way that has like traumatic impacts to people and you know autistic adults that are really vocalizing the the harm that they came at the result of the poor delivery of ABA and us saying oh no 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 that's not ABA is is diminishing their experiences but being like that is poor delivery of ABA and let me show you what the right delivery of ABA can be it can be collaborative it can be fun it can be safe it can be televisable it can be all these amazing things and that's if we as a field can continue to move in that direction, I think collaboration will follow a lot more easily because people are going to want to collaborate with us. But right now, who wants to be associated with cold? No one. Right. That's going off in a totally different direction. Sorry. No, no, no. No, I I agree. I think that's, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head even earlier in the episode. It was like, what has your experience been? And based on that, 
if OTs have only heard negative things, something has to change that rhetoric. Yeah. So, no, absolutely. Mandy, do you, do you have any other thoughts? I guess I just wanted to advocate a little bit for uh, for behavioralists there because I, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of centres around the world and at fit learning clinics. And I think when you see behavioralists with kids, you know, they understand reinforcement and they understand pairing and those procedures. And there's lots of us that are really fun. So I just put out to there for anyone that is highly offended by that, that just like anyone that works in this human services field and particularly with kids with severe and challenging behaviour, you know, it has to be fun because otherwise you just don't last in this field and you have to love what you do. So I, I just want to send a shout out to all those extraordinary, um, you know, everybody in all of the fields, but particularly those behavioralists that are down on their hands and knees doing 20 hours a week, you know, with kids teaching them the hardest skills in the world and having to be super, super fun day in, day out. So um, so I think we are fun, but I think, I think what you're talking about is a professional collaboration, you know, perhaps sometimes you know, the information that we have to share is cold because it's data on a page and it's, you know, it's information we often have to convey quickly with a, a lot of money and resources having been committed to it. But yeah, that shouldn't stop us also, um, you know, seeing the lightness in what we do and uh, and reinforcing others in our environments in which we, we operate in. And I think, yeah, I think, I think that can always be a goal of collaboration is to ensure that, you know, people feel valued and that it is fun and that, you know, in amongst the seriousness of what we do, there is also, we also bring a lightness to our collaboration. Yes, Mandy, that was a great way of rephrasing what I said. I don't mean we're not fun, but we're not always putting that forward. You know, we're, we're maybe leading with data, which is so obviously we need to do yeah. that, but we can do that in a way that that showcases all of the creative, you know, helpful, fun things we do, just like my opinions of OTs. So yeah, I don't mean to overgeneralize that or say that we're not fun. <laughs> well, and I, I also think this is an opportunity for OTs and ABAs to collaborate, right? So OTs have knowledge of what sensory activities are fun for Johnny that he really enjoys. And working within ABA therapists, we can figure out when to use those strategically to improve, uh, to offer it as a reinforcement, but also to know, already know what they prefer what activities I prefer. So as an OT, I like to talk to the avian therapist and go, hey, you know what, Johnny really likes swinging or really likes blah, blah, blah. And this is where I'm planning to use it. Is that okay? Or, you know, sharing the ideas there on preference assessments. That's what I was thinking of. You guys do a lot of preference assessments and that's so valuable for OTs. So we can share our knowledge of what sensory preferences they are. And then, you know, you sharing your knowledge of preference assessments can really help both sides of the young. Yeah, so true. All right. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Sasha, for sharing your perspective. It's always nice to find somebody else to talk to about collaboration because it ends up being Mandy and I. Although I have to say so many people have reached out and been so kind and generous and sharing their stories. Mandy, did you want to just go over some key takeaways? Yeah, so much great stuff. So great to talk to you, Sasha, and your really unique experience, particularly um, in a school setting. So, yeah, I loved your ideas for um, what we would call pairing, but like getting to know each other up front, really important, I think, instead of launching straight into the data and uh, forming relationships with people and finding common ground. I love that you mentioned 
taking data on sensory interventions. That can be such a, in our podcast as well, such a, that S word is really uh, a very, a word that we have to tread carefully around. But, you know, if we can show people that we let the data do the talking rather than, you know, the therapist and, um, and that there are some really good ideas and possibly contributions that, you know, may not yet have any um, empirical validation, but, you know, we can bring methods to show the effectiveness and whether it is working and whether it is um, addressing a need of the student. I just, yeah, I just love the way you put that and your positivity and optimism around collaboration. And um, yeah, it's been really great to talk to you. Um, I feel motivated to go out and look at more of your work and um, hopefully you can come down to Australia one day. Oh, yes, I would love that. Well, yeah, thank you both so much for having me. This is so fun. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, um, I don't know if you know, um, Sasha, but Mandy and I implemented a pause button for collaboration. And it's basically when we say something that might cause an OT or an ABA to go down this rabbit hole of negativity and go, oh, no, I don't agree, whatever. And it's just a way of pausing and saying, OK, hold on. Will you make any judgments? We're just trying to find a common ground in a common place. So that was sort of fun. And we had to do it because... We ended up like, you know, Mandy would say something or I'd say something and we'd be like, oh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know where to go from there. And so it really worked. But I uh, didn't have to use it today, Mandy. Isn't that great? Not at all. I guess, you know, what that pause button is, is really, and, and Sasha referred to this as well, and that is, you know, become a really good listener if you're not already and give yeah. somebody an opportunity to, you know, fully explain the basis of the intervention, as Sasha put so beautifully, a lot of people, most people in these fields are highly educated and and highly motivated to make change in the learners they work with. And if you just immediately have that voice in your head of, oh, they're an OT or they're an ABA and they don't know anything, you, you know, you really have to put that aside and be present and mindful in the moment that these people have contributions to make. And um, so that pause button is really a listen button, yeah. you know, give give the person an opportunity and time to explain their perspective and be willing to learn. I think that button should be everywhere in life. Everyone needs that. <laughs> Everybody needs a pause button. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thank you, Sasha, again. And we will be uh, adding all the information regarding Sasha to our resources, her website. She has some lovely resources for working with students with autism. So we'll have all that information on our show notes. So remember, the most valuable resource we have as therapists is each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So, hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And hooroo from Down Under. <laughs> <laughs>